Vital Educators podcast is hosted by self-development coach, investor, and renowned educator, Ahmed Saqib. Ahmed will speak to fellow educators, young professionals, ordinary people like you and me about their life choices that allowed them to become successful in their careers. He will also delve deeper into the psychology and their perception of success, the good, bad, and the ugly. For young students, he will discuss techniques to help you with your learning and development. Ahmed is committed to helping you determine what you want to do in life. He will share his own life experiences of self-discovery and self-realization that has led him to launch this venture. So this podcast is for anyone who wants to know more about various paths to becoming successful in any profession or passion. Hi guys, my name is Ahmed. I'm an entrepreneur and an educator. And on this channel, I have invited a very special, special ed teacher today. Uh, her name is Savannah. Hi Savannah, how's it going? You're right. Yeah, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much. So looking at your background, I saw that you're a special ed teacher. Uh, so how did you get into teaching? If you don't want me asking. No, yeah. So um, I'm a special education teacher. I just finished my fourth year. I started working with individuals with disabilities when I was 16. I started at a um, special needs summer camp. And from there, it kind of just led, I was just kind of, um, everything just kind of fell into place. From there, I started nannying a young man um, on the autism spectrum through college. And then um, that led to kind of me finding my career path and becoming a special education teacher. My, the largest part of my background is working with individuals with autism. Mm -hmm. And I have worked with individuals from like preschool ages, you know, three, four, all the way through adulthood. So I've seen quite a lot and I've worked with a, a variety of individuals, which has been a really cool experience. Wow. Uh, fascinating. So uh, why special ed in particular? Why spe special education? I mean, why not regular education? <laughs> That's always the million dollar question. So I, I found a passion working with kiddos who, who everybody knew they struggled in school and, or socially or with behaviors. And I really found a passion in trying to find ways to meet their needs while still holding them to really high expectations. So I taught middle school for a couple of years. And the one thing that my colleagues always said to me was, wow, they act totally different in your classroom than they do in mine. Why is that? <laughs> Well, I always said, I, I hold them to, to the same expectations that I would any, any other student of mine. Um, I just show them how to get and meet those expectations in a way that's attainable for them. So, you know, all of my kids learn differently. All of them have their quirks and they have their strengths and their weaknesses, of course. And so I, I really worked, especially when I taught middle school, mm. for my kiddos to recognize what their strengths and their weaknesses were mm. and then how to how to utilize those to define their own version of success, because I'm a firm believer that success looks differently for everybody. Mm -hmm. And so um, it was really important for me to teach that to my students. And so I just really found a passion in helping them meet their needs and then also making them and teaching them ways to be independent and successful. Mm, wow. So um, what kind of challenges do you normally see with special ed kids that you don't see with normal kids, basically? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to use the word normal here. I mean, regular kids. Uh, yeah. what, what is it that you normally see on a regular basis? 
So typically, or like right now, I um, teach in a what's considered a self-contained autism program. Mm. So my students, um, typically they exhibit lots of different behaviors that would not be appropriate for a typical classroom setting. So um, that could be anything from throwing things or physical aggression, verbal, verbal aggression or verbal outburst, whatever you want to call it. And then I also typically see learning challenges. And so I work with a lot of students who are nonverbal. And so they use communication devices to voice output devices to communicate with the outside world. So obviously a child using a communication device, especially at a young age, doesn't really fit the mold of our typical kindergarten classrooms. Hmm. Well, um, you, a lot of this is um, makes me kind of think of me as a child and how, what kind of child I was basically. Two things that you've mentioned here that stood out to me, of course, uh, one being the nonverbal aspect and the other one that I personally relate to as a child is the aggression. Um, so how do you actually control a kid who is hyper active and extremely aggressive towards you? What do you do? So I, my, my goal is always to prevent the situation. So to take steps to prevent a child from being put in a situation where they feel like they need to communicate, we communicate with me in a um, aggressive manner. So mm. all behaviors, communication. And so I have to, I really, this, this requires me to build very strong relationships with my students. And I typically try to prevent the situation before it gets, before it gets to that point. Um, sometimes that is just not, not going to happen. Mm. But, um, I do as much as I can. So things that we implement um, within my classroom and that I also implement with families that I work with privately in my consulting business are visual schedules. And so typically kiddos with, with challenges, whether it's academics or social, they struggle with the uncertainty of things. And so mm. having visual schedules allow them to know what to expect and what's going to come next. Hmm. So, so um, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. So you think, so you, so what you're saying is that the reason they are aggressive is because they don't know what to expect. Sometimes, sometimes. Hmm. So hmm. that, that is just one strategy that I use to help prevent um, meltdowns. I've also used reinforcement systems. So reinforcement is big. And so sometimes our kiddos uh, with challenges, they don't really understand the behavior, what, what the adults are expecting of them, like what Mm. behaviors are appropriate and inappropriate. And so it takes a lot of teaching the appropriate behaviors and lots and lots of reinforcement. So Mm. when combining those things, you see less behavior challenges um, when those two things are implemented appropriately and consistently Mm. at school or even at home. So I, I teach parents how to do the same thing that I do in the classroom. I teach them how to do that at home in my private business. And so I think that those are kind of the strategies that I use to prevent the situation from happening. And then if it ever gets to the point where the child is still unable to communicate with me in an appropriate manner, and it might lead to aggression or verbal outburst, I really just give them space and I wait for them to, to calm down. I try to provide as little verbal response from me and maybe provide them a safe space, whether that's a safe space in my classroom or a safe space in their house, maybe something that I know is comforting to them or that would make them happy to try to get them to 
to kind of come back and be the same mindset that I am. Um, however, once they come back to that to that space, there can be some, it, it can turn from a verbal outburst or physical aggression to being upset and sad very quickly. So then mm. you have, then I, I have to comfort and console. So it just, it all depends on the kid. It all depends on the individual, you know, different things make you angry, different things make me angry. And mm. so different things comfort us too. Mm. So what comforts you, comforts you might not comfort me. True. And so, like I said, that goes back to having really strong relationships with my students and the clients that I work with. Interesting. So do you normally see them, uh, given the fact that they're uh, autistic, um, now I don't know what kind of autistic they actually are, or what kind of autism do you normally deal with, but do you think that they actually, uh, th th this mechanism or this method of yours actually work? Um, um, and, and if it does work, how long does it actually take for them to realize that they are, were being aggressive and then uh, they perhaps come and say sorry to you. Does that happen as well? Uh, it depends. And so it depends on where the child is at in their age and their abilities. And so mm -hmm. most of the time I find that the kid, like the child does realize what they're doing is not okay, but they don't always know how to express that it's not okay. They don't always know how to express that they're sorry, mm. but there are other behaviors that I can look for in a child, especially one that I have built a strong relationship with to identify the fact that I can tell that they're remorseful. I can tell that they, you know, may not fully understand the situation, but they, they don't want it to happen again. And so depending on their age too, it's the older they are, it's easier to speak with them about and kind of reflect on the situation. Mm. But some of my younger ones, especially my younger ones who are pre-verbal or non-verbal, it's harder to discuss those, those it's harder to have those conversations with them. Mm. So we try to use, I try to use a lot of social stories, um, lots of pictures, lots of symbols to try to talk about those things and provide them with other options for the next time something happens they have a different way to communicate. Awesome, awesome. Um, earlier you mentioned uh, uh, positive reinforcement. And uh, I just wanted to ask, uh, what would you say to a parent that would say that that's bribery? Yeah, so um, I actually have a whole workshop on um, reinforcement versus bribery. So, nice. so bribery is what happens after the behavior has already started. And mm. reinforcement is what happens after after the positive behavior has happened or reinforcement is what is used to shape the positive behavior. So if you think about reinforcement and bribery, if you think about mom and dad are getting ready in the morning, they're getting all three kids ready mm -hmm. and the youngest, everybody's about to walk out the door. The youngest drops to the floor, kicking <laughs> and screaming and crying. <laughs> well, mom and dad have to get to work. So what do they do? You want ice cream for breakfast? Here's some ice cream. Let's go to school. Now mm. child has learned that if they drop on the floor and get upset before everybody walks out the door, they can get ice cream for breakfast. And then that's, that's what they're going to do. Mm. Because I, I mean, I want ice cream for breakfast. So if I, <laughs> that's what I have to do. I will, that's what I'll do. Now, if the parent had said, if the parent knew that the a tantrum was, is possible this maybe this child has a history of having meltdowns at this time if the parent switched the kind of this kind of shifted here and said 
okay, you know what, Susie, I know that going to school in the morning and leaving mom and dad is really hard, but if you can be a big, brave, strong girl and you can get in the car without kicking and screaming and yelling, mm. I tell you what, when you get in the car that today after school, daddy's going to take you to the park. Interesting. So then the child realizes that if she does this positive behavior, she still gets a reward. So, but she, if she has a meltdown on the way to the car, mom has to say, oh, Susie, I'm so sorry. You can't go to the park with daddy after school now because mm -hmm. you did not follow the rules. You did not get in the car quietly. You did not get in the car without kicking and screaming. But you know what, Susie, you can try again tomorrow. Interesting. So, uh, so, so in most cases, you're a big believer in positive reinforcement. Are there any, um, are there any instances where it hasn't worked in your case? No. Um, I mean, I use, this is going to sound terrible, but I mean, I use positive <laughs> reinforcement in my own relationships, you know, nice. uh, with That's, people. It's not going to, it's not, it doesn't sound terrible at all, to be honest <laughs> with you. That's how relationships should be in my opinion anyway. I mean, there's, there needs to be incentives in, in any uh, aspects of life. Um, so, so I completely agree with you on the fact that positive reinforcements definitely work. So yeah, sorry, you were saying, I apologize. Well, yeah, I mean, I use it in my personal relationships and even as adults, you know, I, I have to go to work to get a paycheck. Mm. So I have to go to work first and then I get a paycheck at the end of the month or well, however, you know, your pay system works. It's the same thing, you know, the, for like working out and going to the gym, I have to go work out if I want to, the positive reinforcement could either be fit in my jeans or the positive reinforcement could be get stronger depending mm. on where you're at in your journey. Those are all different ways of natural positive reinforcements. And so even as adults, we are positively reinforced by those around us, even if we don't realize it and even if they don't realize it. So, mm. um, you know, if you have a spouse and you're trying to get your spouse to do the dishes after dinner, I mean, most of the time, I mean, you know, you know, I really love the way that you help me with the dishes. It made me feel so great. So positive reinforcement doesn't always have to be tangible. Mm. It can be verbal. Um, verbal praise. And a lot of people, they enjoy verbal praise. They enjoy being recognized for what they're doing. And That's especially, true. you know, even in an adult romantic relationship, they, two people enjoy being recognized and then making the other person feel mm. safe or secure or happy or less stressed or whatever it may be. So, I mean, positive reinforcement, we use all the time, whether you're a teacher or you're just somebody else management uses it all the time too. Of course. So it's definitely, um, it's, it's just kind of how we're made as humans, I think. You're right. Um, uh, this makes me actually realize that uh, most uh, of most relationships in life are just built on gratitude and uh, being appreciative of the other person. So if you want a successful relationship um, in any aspect of your life, it doesn't have to be with your partner, but with your mother, with your father, with your siblings, uh, with your student, in fact, as well, all it takes is uh, thank you for doing that or you're awesome uh, so, because you're absolutely right. It actually makes them feel uh, appreciated and makes them feel um, very comfortable and they're more likely to repeat that behavior as well. So you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a subconscious thing. Um, and people actually don't realize it at all. And, uh, um, and what actually normally happens with that, that's what I've seen as well, that uh, you start take, 
you start taking those things for granted um, and you don't pay attention to the nuance or the little aspects of, uh, of the other person and what they're doing in your life and what kind of positive um, influence that they're having in your life. So I definitely 100% agree with you on that, on that front. So let me ask you another question. So what's the most rewarding part of uh, being a special ed teacher, in your opinion? What do you, what do you think is the best part of being a special ed teacher? There, there's really, there's so many. So, I mean, working with younger children, I really get to see their, their achievements. And sometimes their achievements would be very small, would be considered very small to somebody who is used to dealing with, you know, a, a typical child. So I think that's the fun part for me is, you know, most of my kids require such a repetitive curriculum. They require, you know, lessons to be repeated over and over to learn basic skills. And so I think that for me, it's, it's amazing for, you know, that time that, that the skill finally clicks. You know, if you're talking, thinking like letters and numbers and things like that, or even identifying their name, once that skill finally, they finally master that skill and it clicks and they know it's clicked and you know it's clicked and you know it's stuck. Um, I mean, that's such an amazing moment for both me and my students to really see that, you know, all the hard work they've put in and that I've put in is really, it's really meaningful and they're benefiting from it. And then the, probably the second best thing is getting to tell their parents all these little things <laughs> that they that they weren't able to do in August that now they're able to do in May or June or whatever, whatever month we're in. I'm not even sure. So I think, <laughs> it's, yeah, I think that it's great to be able to share that with parents because I find a lot of times that parents, they, once, once they get that autism diagnosis, they aren't really sure what to expect and they don't know if their child's ever going to meet certain milestones. And so I love being able to reassure parents that, you know, your child's making progress. It just looks differently and we're going to continue making progress and they're strong and they're smart and we're going to keep on keeping on. So how do you constitute, uh, what do you, what do you call an achievement for, uh, for, a for a kid with special needs? What, what would you constitute as an achievement? So it could be anything. So it depends on the kid. So here in the United States, kiddos who have a disability have what's called an IEP or an individualized education plan. And within that plan, there are a certain number of goals and the goals are very specific to the child and the skills that they need to develop. So I have some students who are working on letters and numbers and identifying their name and how to greet people. I have other students who are working on addition and subtraction and writing sentences. So it really just kind of depends on the student. I think some of the biggest achievements that I recognize in my classroom have to do with like social behaviors and communication uh, because one of the, the facets of autism is, is social communication and that's kind of what's lacking when we're talking about autism is that's a big part of it. So I think once I really see some of those social behaviors happening, like advocating for themselves and asking to use the restroom or asking for help or even talk, like greeting a, a peer or greeting a teacher I think that those are like the achievements that I love probably the most mm. because those, those achievements, those skills are going to follow them forever true, and they're going to use them every single day. So, and that's not to say that they are not going to use letters and numbers every single day, but I just think that those social behavior skills are so special once mm. they achieve them 
that I love. Those are some of my favorite. But yeah, the, uh, the achievements just kind of depend on the child and what their goals are within their plan. I always say that a teacher is a second parent. Um, so what you're saying is absolutely true because uh, you have a, an opportunity. Um, and to be honest with you, me and uh, being an educator as well has an opportunity to influence a child's life for the rest of their, um, for the rest of their life, basically. And um, so do you, so once you achieved a behavioral change, a permanent behavioral change in a child, do you communicate that with parents as to how to positively reinforce that on a daily basis as well? Oh, absolutely. And even prior to that, I let parents know what we're doing, like the process that we're using at school. So if they see the same behavior at home, they can try to model what we're doing in the classroom. Mm. And I, I have some really great parents in my class. I mean, all of the parents I work with are great. But um, the, I mean, they all do a really great job trying to model that for their child. So the child is getting consistency across both places. And so, and it, it works the same when I go in and I and work with my private clients and consult with them. Um, I walk parents through step-by-step step how to model exactly what I'm doing with their kids, why I'm doing it, and then how it's going to pay off in the long run. And then mm. once, once that system is mastered and the child has mastered the behavior, um, I then teach parents how to kind of wean the child off the, the reinforcement. Cause most of the time when I'm working with kiddos, they're getting tangible reinforcements of some sort. Mm -hmm. So I kind of teach the parents how to transition from that tangible reinforcer back to that positive reinforcement. So, um, you know, they don't always have to carry around a tangible reinforcer of sorts and they can move into that positive reinforcement. And then that positive reinforcement is what kind of creates that intrinsic motivation. And for those who's, who are listening, what is tangible reinforcement? So, yeah, so a tangible reinforcement is going to be something um, that they can actually have. So, like, for us as adults, it's our paycheck. But mm -hmm. for a child, it could be M&Ms. It could be a quarter for their piggy bank. It could be a certain toy. It could be an activity that they get to go do. So, it could be whatever makes the child, you know, whatever makes them excited. I have, I have kids who love bubbles. I have kids who love iPad time, M&Ms mm -hmm. um, and Skittles. I spend so much money on M&Ms and Skittles. It's, it's insane. Just so they have that little reinforcement to keep them going to the next activity. So, that's what, that's what our tangible reinforcements typically look like. Mm. Um, you know, so, so how, and is that different from positive reinforcement or is this just a part of positive reinforcement? It's more just a part of positive reinforcement. So, you know, positive reinforcement is this big, you know, umbrella. umbrella. Yeah. And then under it, we've got, you know, positive verbal reinforcement. We've got tangible reinforcement, mm. things like that. And so um, I, I think it's just, it falls right in there with positive reinforcement. Makes sense. Okay. So nowadays schools are closed, right? Because of the COVID situation. Uh, well, in, even in the UK as well, we, we, it's, it's manic basically. So what would you say to parents who don't have an access to somebody like you um, and they are sitting at home and they, and they, and, and they, they have no idea how to control their children, especially the ones with special needs. What's your mm -hmm. advice to them? What would you say to them to do in these times? So that I'm actually working on that right now with a, a group of parents. And so I have a, a free workshop and I'll send you the link so you can distribute sure. it um, to anybody that might benefit from it or anybody who's listening. And it's all about focusing on schedules and routines and, and behavior systems. So it talks about how creating a schedule and 
um, identifying routines and how those will help structure your child's day. Because like I said before, sometimes it's the uncertainty that leads to behaviors. Hmm. And so I teach parents why those things are important and how to create them for their household system. And then at the, at the end of this week, I'm, I'm teaching parents how to create and implement a positive behavior system within their household. And so identifying what reinforces their child, identifying how often to reinforce the child, and then some of those preventative strategies that I talked about earlier to help them prevent the behavior so they can end up reinforcing the positive behavior that they're trying to shape. Do you ever get parents who are not interested in, uh, or because I have seen some parents who are quite well, I don't obviously deal with special needs parents, uh, kids anyway. But uh, when I speak to your parents of a of a regular child, I sometimes find that they they're quite disinterested in the activities. Um, hence, why they want me to kind of come in and guide the child. So, how do you deal with a parent like that who's who's not very um, not very keen on uh, on the development of the child from a from a behavioral standpoint or from a personal development standpoint? So I haven't encountered that yet. Um, And so I think, but I think part of my practice is both as a, as a certified teacher, but then also as a family consultant, you know, I, I really focus on the family as a whole. So the, Mm. the private clients that I have, when I go in and do like my consultation meeting with the child and the family, um, I make it very known that, that this isn't going to work unless everybody's on board and everybody's willing to put in the effort. And um, there might be a system out there somewhere that they could try that, you know, they could just put in place and it's magically going to work. I haven't found that system yet, Mm -hmm. but I found that when the family is all on board and the family is supporting the child and supporting each other during the process, because the process can become, become a little difficult depending on what's going on inside the house, there's more success. The more people, the more, you know, it, it takes a village, right? So the more people you have in that village that are on board with you, the, the quicker the intimacy results and the better results you're going to see. So I haven't come across that exact scenario, but I think I would just, I I mean, I would explain that that's my practice. And as a practitioner, you know, I, that's what I follow is, is kind of a family model. I'm glad you haven't had uh, uh, parents who are not, communicative or who are not very uh, involved in their child, which is very good to know that uh, um, parenting in the U.S. is a lot better par- in, than parenting in the U.K., I guess. Uh, <laughs> Probably depends on where you are. <laughs> and that too, of course. Um, I, I was also going to ask you as well, because I think this is something that I lack in myself. And uh, when I was actually studying um, some of the what you've said on your website, um, it just made me realize that um, how do you muster so much patience to deal with um, special needs kids? Because I feel like I lack a lot of patience. So that's why I avoid teaching kids who are, who are younger than a certain age. So how do you deal with that? You know, it's funny. I think that in my professional life as a teacher and as a consultant, I have an extreme amount of patience. However, I don't always show that same patience to other people around me. Hmm. So I don't really know, you know, I don't really know where it comes from. I think that, I think I just know the difference that I can make in the the kids' lives that I work with and in their families' lives. I feel like I've seen such progress from the families that I've worked with already Hmm. that, you know, it's a disservice for me not to use the skills that I have and the knowledge that I have to help, you know, whether it be children or their family. 
And I mean, I love seeing the progress they make. And, you know, I love my students. Like you said earlier, your teacher's like a second parent. I mean, mm -hmm. I, my, my students' parents know that. I mean, I love my students and it's been hard being away from them for so long with everything <laughs> happening with the closures. And so I think that I just kind of, you know, work on, work on that and, and all, you know, doing all that, those things and those relationships. Interesting. Okay. Um, because um, I personally find, I personally find if I don't see a result in a certain period of time and I can design a timeline for them, uh, for the student. And if I don't see that in the, in, in, in that timeline, it makes me feel like I'm not achieving the objectives that I set out to do. And if I don't achieve those objectives, I don't feel satisfied. And that's probably because when I look in my head, I guess, I realized that that's probably why I am impatient because I want the results. I want that behavioral change or I want that, um, I want that grade essentially for the child. Um, so do, do you have those metrics and what happens when you don't achieve those metrics and how do you deal with failure in that sense? So, so basically, and you know, kind of my, my viewpoint and the plan that I have is, you know, um, our, our education plans for our students with disabilities are, for one calendar year. Mm -hmm. And basically I always set it up as, you know, if I have their meeting in August when school starts to develop the plan and say by October, something just doesn't seem to be working. They're not making progress because, you know, as teachers, we take tons of data. And so if the data is not showing me progress or success, I kind of look at what I'm doing and I look for a different strategy. So there's no point in using the same strategy for a whole year if I'm not going to see any progress, but I kind of try to reevaluate the strategies I'm using every month or two if I'm not seeing the progress that I think I should be seeing, hmm. you know, and at some point if you, if you try so many strategies and there's not any progress being made, I typically go back and I start to look at, um, you know, their evaluation and cognition and psychology and things like that hmm. to make sure there's not a disconnect that, you know, I'm just going to hit a brick wall no matter what I do if there's a disconnect within cognition and or their psychology or something like that. So I think it's just really important to reflect on the practices that you're putting into place mm -hmm. and kind of reevaluate those as time goes on for, you know, whether depending on the progress you want to see. Fascinating. Wow. Okay, that, that kind of obviously answers my question and it clears up the confusion that I was having. Maybe I need to do something similar. Um, so let me ask you this question. What would you, what would you say to someone who would want to come and do the same job as who wants to come into your line of work, basically? What would you say to that person? I mean, how, would, how, how should they? And what kind of acumen that, that they need to have to be successful in, 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 that, in, in your vocation, basically? So the first thing I would suggest to anybody who wants to be a special education teacher or consultant or anything, I would recommend they find some kind of job working with individuals with disabilities. And it could be adults or it could be children. It could be, it could be at a daycare. It could be volunteering with different organizations, hmm. but really seeing if, if you can handle the different behaviors that come with it and if you can have the patience to wait for results and work with a large team of people of educators and practitioners and parents 
to, to find and create the results. I think the best thing I ever did was when I told my mom I wanted to become a special education teacher when I was 16, hmm. she said, well, you better find a job where you can <laughs> really see if that's what you want to do. Because prior to that, I had a business plan and I was going to go to California and go to fashion and design school. Hmm. So you can imagine her surprise when I told her I wanted to be a special education teacher. Actually, so, also my surprise as well. Sorry to interject. Yeah. I was just wanted to say, how did that happen? Like, how did the, how did this shift? That's a massive shift. How did that happen? Yeah. So I had to do some volunteer work when I was in high school, and the classroom that I was placed in was a kindergarten classroom, and the teacher had me work with these three little boys, hmm. and didn't really give me any like heads up or anything, and I was helping them learn their their sight words, and so. Um, I was helping them learn their like basic vocabulary and sight words for reading. And, you know, I just loved working with these three little boys and it was the end of the semester. And I told her, I was like, I just, you know, I wish I had more time to come back. I would love to come back, you know, and work with them. And she goes, I can't believe that you stuck it out the whole semester and that you worked mm -hmm. with those three boys like that. And I said, what do you mean? Like they were the sweetest. And she goes, Jade, you know, one of them has autism and the other two uh, one of them had ADD and one of them had ADHD. Mm. And I said, I didn't even like, I didn't really even pick up on that. Like I really <laughs> just enjoyed working with them. And prior to wanting to go into fashion design when I was much younger, I, I had kind of always played teacher, you know, all of that. And I enjoyed it, but then I kind of switched my gears and wanted to do fashion and design. So mm. after I did this volunteer work, I was like, this is what I, this is what I want to do. Like, I want to be a teacher. I had some great teachers growing up. And so I knew the impact that teachers made on me and that I kind of wanted to make that impact too. So my mom said, find a job that you can really see if that's what you want to do. And I, the first summer that I worked at the summer camp for individuals with disabilities, I spent 10 weeks, I believe, working. Um, the individuals would come on Sunday and they would stay overnight until Friday and they were of all ages and we had all sorts of activities for them. And I saw, I learned all sorts of strategies to communicate. I learned basic sign language. Um, I learned different behavior techniques to work with them. Wow. And seeing the joy that they had coming every week to see us and every summer, I, I did that for four summers, um, was just amazing. It was such a, it was just such a beautiful place to work. And so, mm -hmm. You know, I just recommend if anybody wants to get into special education, it's not for the faint of heart for a lot of reasons. And of so I just recommend that anybody do some volunteer work or find a, a, a part-time job where they're interacting with individuals with disabilities. And if after that you still, you know, think that that's what you want to do, then by all means, please, because we, we always need more special education teachers, no matter where you are in the world. Um, they're in short supply. And so I think that if somebody wants to do that, I think that's the best place to start. And then really kind of understanding the different disabilities and some, some basic psychology is a huge help as well. Of course. Um, presumably, um, if you go to university for early education or early life education, you, I'm sure, um, obviously I haven't done the degree myself, but I'm sure that you get to learn and understand all that anyway, right? Yeah, so um, it's actually interesting here in the United States, um, our teaching programs actually don't really identify special, don't really have a lot of special education courses, which is um, 
and, and quite an issue here in education right now. Hmm. Um, so that's kind of disheartening, but there is a lot of psychology or not a lot, but there's several courses on psychology that are helpful to anybody to understand different disorders and disabilities. And so psychology definitely helps. And so the special education courses are sometimes lacking depending on the, the teacher prep program, depending on the state that they're in. Hmm. Um, and I'm not sure what in the UK, what the curriculum looks like for a university, but I, um, I would, I would just really, you know, reading if, if the, if the university or the college does not provide a lot of special education courses, you know, doing that research on your own, asking questions, even talking to parents that you might know whose children have a disability, getting their insight. I mean, that's some of the most invaluable experience I have is the family that I nannied for, um, learning from the parents and understanding what they went through on a daily basis. So wow. just kind of understanding the whole picture is really probably the best advice I could give somebody. Mm. That's that's very helpful. We do have uh, special education schools ded dedicated to students like these. Do you have that in the U.S. or is it all mixed in together and you have different classes for different children, for example? So it kind of depends where you're at in the United States. Um, you know, we're pushing for this big inclusion movement, which mm. I have some mixed feelings about. Um, <laughs> I understand I understand why we have inclusion. I believe inclusion is right for some children. I believe that um, inclusion is important. However, there are times, especially especially when it comes to academics, that inclusion is not always appropriate, depending on the child's. Why do you say that? Depending on the the child's cognition and developmental level, oh. it's 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 not really appropriate for me to put in a second grader who is nonverbal and uses a communication device into a typical second grade classroom hmm. where think about what second graders are doing. They're reading short chapter books, they're writing sentences, getting ready to start paragraphs. And, you know, they're communicating when they need to use the restroom or when they need to, when they need help. And so I feel like, I think it's great that we have inclusion and I think inclusion is great in certain circumstances. And, you know, all of my students, they go to like, lunch, recess, music, art, and library with their peers. Mm. However, it's when it comes to the academics that I, I teach all their academics. And so that way their academics are modified and um, they're, they're differentiated to their needs as a learner. Do you think that at their age, do they notice that, um, that they, are, they are special and they are separated from the rest of the crowd basically? I think that depends on the significance of the disability. Hmm. Fair enough. So, so, so in, in, in essence, you're saying that they do recognize the fact that they're nonverbal or the fact that they are being aggressive after a certain while. And they are, they, they are I mean, more aggressive than, a, than, than, than the rest of the class, for example. Yeah. I think, again, it depends on the child and it depends on the significance of the disability. Hmm. Um, I find the older they get, sometimes they recognize more. But again, if they have a significant cognitive delay, that's, that's always going to be hard for them to understand, some, you know, for the most part. Fascinating. Wow. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to ask you one last question, I think, uh, and I've considered this to be the most important question. What is your mission in life? Oh, it's such a loaded question. Um, so, I, so I think my mission has shifted, but I think, you know, I really right now, my, my mission and my passion is really educating communities and parents 
and other educators who don't have the background that I have mm -hmm. on ways to interact and ways to teach and ways to work with and employ and just kind of, you know, live in a society where we, we have individuals with disabilities, we have individuals with cognitive delays and behavioral concerns, and we kind of, we need to l learn to cohabitate with them. Mm -hmm. And we need to learn to rally around them and support them in whatever ways that we can. And so my mission right now is to teach parents how to advocate for their children, and then to teach communities and other educators how to work with those individuals safely and effectively. Mm. And uh, so it's kind of, this sounds like a very never ending mission though, don't you think? Um, because you will, do you, do you ever think that you'll, you'll ever, is there an end point to this mission? Do you think that there is one or there isn't? Um, I think there's, I definitely think there's a point. I definitely think that if I can teach parents to be the best advocate for their child, that, that parents will then be able to start to kind of push back and fight for that, um, that right those those right services that their child needs and so um, I know that special education systems around the world are kind of don't always provide the best services for the what the child needs due to funding and resources and I know we just got a huge like 131 billion dollar education cut here mm, um, in my wow. state and so I know that you know Budget cuts are always happening, which affects the amount of resources that our children have, and especially our special education children. And so, I but I don't think that that should stop us from providing the right services. So I feel like if I teach parents to advocate for their child, and that the more parents that know how to advocate and the more parents that know the law, the bigger pushback they can have to really get what's needed for our children. And then in, in, on the turn of educators, I feel the same way. I feel like sometimes as teachers, we just kind of do what we're told by our district. And yep. if you've been in one district for the, for so long, you only know that one way. Um, mm. And so I feel like as teachers, we also have to be advocates for our kids. And for me, sometimes that means going against what my district would recommend. Um, and of course I do that appropriately in color within the lines, Oops. but I do, um, I guess most people would say I push the boundaries to get what my kids need. And, and I'm okay with that. If that's what I'm known for, then that's fine with me. Um, but I think that, that while it, yes, it's probably, it seems like a never ending mission. I think that if, if I can teach teachers and parents how to be advocates for our kids with disabilities, eventually I think that my mission could change into something different kind of based off of that, you know? Could, you, could, sorry to interrupt. Do you see well, yourself becoming the advocate for, um, for educators and for uh for special need kids because i feel like especially in um, in in the society that i live in um they, they, i feel like they're very neglected and they're an afterthought and with the way you speak yeah. about the 131 billion dollar cut that is just in your state in education kind of makes me think like people actually don't value it as much as they value other aspects of life so uh, from from a mission standpoint where where do you see yourself do you see yourself going in that direction or no Yes, I do. Yeah. So I have um, one more year in the classroom. And then after that, my kind of career path is kind of up in the air. So, you know, I've started private consulting, I've started um, membership groups and online courses for parents and teachers. And so that's kind of where I'm at now. Hmm. And I hope that once I'm out of the classroom, I can switch into more of an advocacy role for parents. Um, 
specifically and then hopefully later for for teachers and school districts to you know advocate for these children um i'm hoping next year to get into some policy and legislative work here in my state you know to show the importance of the programs that we have and that, that we can't afford for funding to be cut mm. and you know parents teaching them to advocate by understanding the law a lot of what i see in the united states is parents don't under don't know the laws that protect their child and protect them as a parent of a child with disabilities mm. so i feel like you know knowledge is power and i feel like educating parents to understand those things is just vital so they can get their children what they need and then yeah hopefully you know hopefully if i can teach them those things that hopefully they don't need an advocate but mm. if they do I, I'm hoping that that's where my my path will lead me. That's brilliant. That's a fantastic goal, and uh, I really hope and I wish you all all the best of luck, basically, because I know that you will. It's it's not an easy task at all, <clears throat> and uh, it 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 will require a lot of courage and, of course, a lot of patience, which you already have, of course. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Only thing that I was going to actually ask you: if somebody obviously listens to this, and I'm sure people will, how do they how do they reach out to you? Yeah, so I have a private Facebook group, a free Facebook group um, that I provide resources in. And then they can also find me um, at my website, which is jadekaiser.com. Mm -hmm. And then I will, I will send you the links to put in the show notes for my group and then yeah. um, my website as well. So you can just put that in the show notes. Fantastic. And then I'll, I'll send my, my email as well. So if somebody wanted to get in touch with me directly, um, they have that option as well. Fantastic. It's uh, lovely speaking to you. It was a genuine pleasure. Thank you so much. I really learned a lot about special ed, especially in the USA as well. And it's heart disheartening to see that uh, um, so much cuts uh, are being made and, and the level of special education is not where it needs to be. But it's beautiful to see such an inspiring person like you who's, who's really doing everything you can, of course, uh, to make sure that this is something that is um, always in the limelight. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah, thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Take care. Take care. Bye. This was Vital Educators Podcast by Ahmed Saki. Hope you enjoyed. Please follow or subscribe for more content every week.